0: I will not speak faster than I can think, but we've got some stuff to talk about today. Well, I'm going I'm to read fast because most of you are familiar with this story. I'm going to speak fast because I'm passionate about this. That's disclaimer number one. Disclaimer number two is this. I'm really geeked out on this, and that probably means you're going to go, whatever, because I'm a nerd. I, 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 I started looking at this, and I'm like, all right, everyone knows what Palm Sunday is. Everyone knows what Holy Week is. And here's we think the triumphal entry is this and then the temple clearing and then the weird fig tree thing and then the faith that will move mountains and, and we all kind of know what that means. But Mark, like all the other gospel writers has the here's what happened. Here's some meaning. And then here's some meaning. And so I just started digging. And I found some things here that I am stoked on. And you're going to see that I'm stoked. I have no idea how it's going to land. But I will tell you this. It is this whole, this whole chapter 11. So we were in 12 and 13 last week because we wanted Palm Sunday to line on Palm Sunday. So we're moving back. But if you think about what was talked about last week and you read this chapter, every single thing in this chapter says the same thing. It just says it in different ways. And even the weird fig tree thing, which we will talk about today. But I want, I want us to see that, that this is a time when God is pronouncing judgment. We don't usually like that. Um, I was in, in, 1983, I was in a, uh, I was on the corner of a Lake Drive and Breton Road um, in East Grand Rapids, right? My house was just two, two houses down from that. I'm standing there ready, ready to cross, walking to school, and um, a car came up, and there's a bumper sticker in the car, and I'm going to clean it up a little bit. But it said, Jesus is coming back soon, and man, has he ticked. I just found it funny. But that's kind of how we see God's judgment. But if we look at God's judgment throughout history, when he shows up in the form as a prophet and he speaks something that's harsh, there's a chance of something else. It's he's telling them that they're going astray and it's out of his great love for us that he's actually trying to correct us. This is judgment. And it's because he loves us. Now, here's a weird thing about Easter week is it's the time when pastors start thinking about the theory of the atonement, the theories of the atonement. The atonement is just this. What did Christ in his life, suffering, death, and resurrection, what did he accomplish? What did it satisfy? What did it do? And one of those theories of the atonement is called the moral exemplar theory. And that says that Jesus came, and I 100% agree, Jesus came to show us a moral example, show us how to live. And we should imitate Jesus in every situation except at funerals, because he interrupted every funeral he ever went to. But other than that, do what Jesus did, it's good stuff. And then why did he die? Well, it's to show God's great love for us. He died on the cross for us. And if you think about that, yes, but why? There's a big difference between dying for someone and dying to save someone. And here's an example. This comes from a guy, Michael Heiser. I'm going to make it my own, but he's a professor at the seminary in Grand Rapids. Um, he says it this way. If, if Picture me and Lynn, my wife and I, walking over by that weird named park over by the Gerald R. Ford Museum. I don't remember the name of the park, but it's, it's a very long, I think it's a Native American name, but um, there's a sidewalk that goes right along the river. Let's say that my wife and I are walking along the river right now, and the current's up. It's very cold because of the snow melt. It, now, it wouldn't be a good thing to fall into. And I'm waxing eloquent to Lynn, telling her of my great love for her, and I'm trying to be poetic and maybe a little proverbial, and, and, and I'm just trying to get, you know, that little, oh, I'm trying to get that out of her. And so as I'm talking about my great love for her, she trips on a little segment of the sidewalk that's bumped up a little bit from the winter. And she kicks it and she falls in the river. And I do what any red-blooded American man would do, is I take my cell phone out of my pocket because I don't want to ruin it. And then I jump in. And let's say I jump in and the current takes us both away and some by some miracle, she's a better swimmer than I am, my body's not working right these days, but by some miracle, I'm able to get her over to the seawall, prop her up so she can climb out. And then my leg gets caught between two rocks and the current pushes me over and I can't get up and I never come up again and I die. I'm a hero. I died in her place. The papers would talk about it. She would show up probably a few days later at my funeral and talk about how no greater love does one have for another than to lay their life down, you know, all that kind of stuff. I saved her from drowning. Now let's say that I'm on the same sidewalk and I'm waxing eloquent and trying to get that awe out of my wife. And I'm talking about how much I love her. And I say, let me show you how much I love you. And I jump in the river and drown. That's just dumb. And she would say so at my funeral, and the newspapers would not call me a hero, would call me a, a hopeless, romantic that doesn't have any intelligence. So Jesus died to show his great love for us, but he didn't just die to show us his love. He rescued us from something. We will talk more about that next week, but this is the beginning in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus showing what he's rescuing us from, the great extent, how far he was willing to go. And if he went that far, it tells us something was really wrong. And one of the things that was wrong is what we're going to hear about in Mark 11. Let me offer a brief prayer and we're, we're going to go. We're, we're going. Lord, join us. Your words, not mine. Your heart, not mine. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you want us to see, hear, and receive. In Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. The gospel according to Mark begins with a quote from Isaiah, which is also quoted. God God also says it in a little different form in the book of Malachi. It says this, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send, he's talking about John the baptizer here, but we're going to, you'll see how this all ties together. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way? A voice of one calling in the desert: Prepare the way of the Lord; make straight paths for him. Okay, that's how Mark chooses to start his gospel, and we're going to go back to read a little bit from Malachi before we get into Mark 11, because Mark 11 is about f- a fulfillment of Jeremiah 7 and Mark 11. And here, and I'm going to show you. So, oh, glasses. I just said the Midwestern Ope. Did you hear that? Ope. Here's what Malachi, or here's what Jer- Nope, wrong one. Here's what Malachi says. This is the second person of the Trinity now speaking to the prophet before the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. So before Jesus took on flesh. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. That's what we're talking about today. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then just a few verses later it says, "So I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, idol- or adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, but but then do not fear me," says the Lord. Now, Whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, the hearers know the context. And so, when Mark is telling us, prepare away, he's saying, because the Lord is coming and he's coming to the temple and he's coming to judge. And so, we haven't heard much of the judgment. We've seen Jesus, yeah, he went up. He went over to the Decapolis, the Gerasenes across the sea, and he went up to the gates of hell up at Caesarea Philippi. But most of his time he spent in Capernaum and Galilee, um, more priestly, a little bit of prophetic. He had some harsh words for some of his disciples. He had some harsh words for for the teachers of the law and the religious elite. But by and large, he hung out with the. Uh, uh, the kind of dregs, the people that that didn't get any accolades, the people that have no esteem, that have no place really, or no no no, uh, they're they're no, they're no big deal. They're average joes. But now, and the other two times he's come to the, to the to the to Jerusalem, he's been kind of quiet about it. But not now. Now everything changes, and it reads like this. I'll read it fast. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. So they went and they found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untying that colt. And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it. Many people spread cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut off in the field. Uh, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he left. And that seemed a little weird. He went, he, went, he went out. He went out to Bethany. With the Doesn't that seem a little anticlimactic? That here's this, um, see, it's reminiscent, it's a political statement, but it's reminiscent of a king who's gone off and conquered a foe. And they come home uh, on a horse and they've got all of their soldiers and they have all the spoils of war and they have all of the prisoners of war. And they come in and the people go, yes, they're gonna be our slaves. We don't have to be theirs because we won. It's this idea of victory. And Jesus allows it to happen. He's not being secretive about who he is anymore. He allows it to happen because... Victory is coming. But he, and he is going to be the king. He already is, but he's going to prove that he's the king, but it's not the kind of king they think. But he allows this. All these people are yelling and screaming and crying out, and every one of them hopes that he's going to be the Messiah they want him to be. The Herodians want him to make peace with Rome. The the, Pharaoh, or the Zealots want him to overthrow Rome. There's all this stuff all in the mix, and all these people are almost frothing to make sure that, that they're a part of what God is now doing. The Messiah has finally come, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And then he goes to the temple, which is where God, he says that I'm gonna to come to the temple. He goes to the temple, there's nothing going on there, and it says, it was already late, so he we left. Well, just so you know, in Greek, the, the, the word there for it was already late isn't, I don't understand why they translated it that way, I do, but, but it's, it's actually time's up. Time's up. And if you read in the, in the book of Jeremiah chapter seven, which we will read from in a minute, it tells us that God is watching. So Jesus shows up at the temple after coming in as the king. He shows up at the temple. There's not much going on there, but he's putting them on notice. See, people saw that he was there, and he's putting them on notice. He's watching. And when next time he comes, he's judging. And so it continues. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I'm not sure that he was hungry. I think it's a way of communicating that he he, he walked to this tree. I I, I, I don't know. Anyway, I think Mark's got a smirk on his face when he says Jesus was hungry. So he went to get a fig off of a tree. Um, Seeing in the distance, a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit and when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. We'll come back to the word season here in a minute. Uh, and then he answered the fig tree. It says, said to the tree, but in the original language is he answered the, like, the, like he and the tree were talking. Like, What do you want? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there, buyers and the sellers. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written my house will be called a a, a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. When the chief priests... And the teachers of the law heard this and began, they began looking for a way to kill him. By the way, they've been trying to kill him since, looking for a way to kill him since chapter three, um, three years prior. Uh, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, a couple things. One, the crowds were amazed with Jesus. G- Not here. I mean, we translate amazed, sure. And, but our sense of amazement is like, What? it's bewildered they're like what what just happened here you know and then they start and if he was cleansing the temple as so often we talk about he came to cleanse the temple to set right what's wrong if he was cleansing it he didn't do a very good job because he's that he's back there the next day there's no evidence that this all that they didn't just go ah forget about it and just set everything back up and continue on their way but all the while going what was with that see when Jesus curses the fig tree, you got to know this in Mark. Mark, when he brackets something, it's called inclusio. When he, he starts a story, he interrupts the story, and then he finishes the story. He's saying that they interpret each other. And so when he curses the fig tree, it's in leaf, but it's not in season. The word there for season is not agricultural season. It's God's season. It's, it's not a kairos Moment. This is not a time when God is intersecting with humanity about this thing anymore. It's not, God's not involved in this. What's he not involved in? The fig tree? No. The fig tree has always been, the fig tree and the vineyard have always been, you see it in the, in the, in the next chapter of the parable of the, the, the stewards of the vineyard when they, they end up killing the son of the owner. The vineyard and the fig tree have always represented God's people Israel. And so he's saying, when he curses that fig tree, no more. And when he shows up at the temple and he flips everything upside down, he's saying no more. How do I know? Well, there's more to come, but right here, he's, he, he, he gets rid of the buyers and the sellers. He flips over the, 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 the money and the doves, and then he won't let anyone walk through the temple carrying any merchandise. In other words, if he got his way, no temple worship will ever be able to happen again because it was prescribed by God for them to not ever use Caesar's money, but they had to exchange Caesar's money for God's money and pay the temple tax, and then they used that money to buy the offering, and you had to have, you have to purchase your animal for sacrifice at the temple because we know that it's blemish-free and all of that kind of thing. So they're, they're, they're doing the things that God wanted them to do, And and if you can't carry any merchandise through the temple courts at all, no sacrifice will ever be made. The temple is moot, it no longer matters. That's what he's saying. And we know it because he quotes Jeremiah when he says, has it, is it, not, has it not been written that, that that my house should be a, a house of prayer for all nations? And yeah, they're doing this money changing in the temple courts or in the, in the Gentile court. And yeah, he's saying, how dare you keep others from coming to approach me? You're supposed to be the people. I, I, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you and all your descendants and you will bless every tribe and nation on the planet. That has been God's desire, a beacon on a hill to draw all people like a moth to Flame. That's what he's been doing. It's what he wanted. And they've taken it and they've misused it. And they've made it about separating themselves from other people instead of being the people that God wants them to be, which attracts other people to God. And he's confronted them on this before. He confronted them in Jeremiah chapter 7. Listen to how similar this sounds. He says, Don't trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery? in perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these wretched or detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching. See, think about it for a second. These are, it's a den for robbers. So we think, well, they're swindling everybody. And yeah, there's some of that going on. The high priests get very rich by this little temple tax. It's it's a a good system for them, I got to tell you. But where do robbers do their robbing? In their den? No. Out on the road to Jericho or out there. Their den is their safe house. It's their hideout. In the old westerns, it's that horseshoe canyon where they can see everybody coming and they can get the high ground. That's where they feel safe. What is he saying in Jeremiah? Is the same, what is he saying in Jeremiah hundreds of years before is the same thing he's saying when he claims this in the temple. Don't you dare anymore. Behave the way you behave trust in other things, and then come here and think that you can use this money to buy that money, use that, buy, use that money to buy an animal at this particular time, in this particular place, with this particular offering, and think that your tail is covered. Your time is up. This is done. You don't get to pretend. You don't get to go out there and do whatever you want and then say, well, God has to forgive me. It's over. It's judgment. This is, is done. And then he leaves. And we see more, this is done. And we see more, this is done. And then we see more, this is done. And it's all the same thing. In the morning, they went along, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. And Peter remembered and said said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And I'm kind of expecting Jesus to go, yeah, and let me tell you why. No. Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven May forgive you your sins. You might not notice this, but he just changed the whole religious system. He doesn't say that you and I, because if you live on Lake Michigan and you want your beach back, he doesn't say go stand in front of Mount Pisgah and say jump into the lake, and then it'll all the road, all the sand will road, and you'll get your beach back. And it has to do it. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say a mountain. He says this mountain. You can say, and we love that phrase faith that will move mountains you have a hard time, I will pray for you and I will pray that you have faith that will move this mountain. In this case, that's not what he's saying. He's looking at the temple mount, the same place that Abraham offered up Isaac, the same place that David stood when the judgment of God was coming and David said, I paraphrase, God, take me, not them. It's my sin, not theirs. And the same place that Jesus, a week later, will be hanging on a tree. He says, and that's that's where the temple is. It's where the whole system, the whole upside-down, cracked, and broken reality lives. They believe that God lives there, and he's saying, not anymore. In fact, when he's done, when he breathes his last, the curtain in the Holy of Holies where God lives will tear from top to bottom. This system is over. And I would expect Jesus to tell me about the fig tree, but instead he says, have faith in God, not in the temple. And you can say, if you believe, if you believe me, when I tell you that this system is done, that thing, that mountain, that, 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 this temple system is going where the pigs went. It's going to the same place that I told you to send someone with a, with a millstone tied around them if they keep the little children from coming to me. He's saying that this temple system is going to hell where it belongs. It's worthless. It does nothing. It's not where God works anymore, and you because you've misused it. The whole thing is changing. And he shows us what that new faith is. You have faith directly in God, not in that. But they believe that prayer uttered in the temple was the gates of heaven. And if you wanted something, you wanted God to do something, you go to the temple going to get done. And he's saying that that that's going to hell. You want access to God? Go directly to God. That is, everything just changed. That's grace. And you know what else he tells them? You make sure you forgive so that your father will forgive you. That's the New Testament. That's the new covenant. That's the new law. Have faith in God don't trust in institutions of man. Don't trust in sanctimony or sanctuary or, 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 or ceremony. Trust in God. You ask God, and he, 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 he'll deliver the goods. He'll give you whatever he wants you to have. But make sure, if you're forgiven, that you're forgiving others. And then he says it again, this thing is done. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking in the temple courts. The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you <clears throat> authority to do this? And Jesus replied, typical politician, political answer. I'll answer your question with a question. I will ask you one question. Answer me. He tells him to answer him twice. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. John the baptizer. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, then he will ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they had that little discussion amongst themselves, and then they look up at Jesus and say, "We, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And you know what the next story is? The parable of the tenants. Where he's calling out these chief priests, these teachers of the law, and these elders. Chief priests, every high priest that has been a high priest that isn't currently a high priest is a chief priest. Every priest that has perpetual ongoing duties at the temple, chief priest. Teachers of the law, seminary professors of their day. Elders, rich Jewish men who contributed to the work of the temple were allowed to sit on the board and help make decisions. These are big dogs. And he says, you tell me, John, all the way back to the beginning, the one crying out in the wilderness, preparing a way for Jesus. John and Jesus' lives are are interconnected like you can't even, no way to separate them. And he says, you tell me, John's baptism of God or men? And they won't answer you know why? Tell me about John's baptism. It's a baptism of repentance. You confess, you repent, you wash clean with water, you're right with God. No money has changed his hands, nothing to do with the temple. They can't say that because they're propped up by a, a human institution that they claim to be from God. And they've even said, they've even said, <laughs> They've even said that things that Jesus did were of the devil and things that are of the devil, they've claimed to be of God. And he's saying, he exposes them to themselves and to everyone around them. This is over. It's not about them. A- ask yourself this question. When Jesus gets on that little donkey and he goes down the road, so you come down the Mount of Olives and then you come up to the Temple, temple Mount, do you think that that donkey, when they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the coming of the, of, our, of the kingdom of our father, David. You think for one minute that donkey's like, oh, this is for me. But you know what? The people did. The Herodians wanted peace with Herod and Rome. The Zealots wanted an insurrection and a tossing out of Rome and a theocracy set up the way it used to be. And the Pharisees wanted it differently. And the everyday Joe wanted it differently. And they wanted, they all had this idea of who their Messiah was gonna be and what he was gonna do for them. And he came and he said, none of that. Everything changes. All of your expectation is gone. None of that. It's not about you. Christianity is not about Christians. It's about Christ. And it's not about church. It's about redemption. It's about forgiveness. It's about grace. It's judgment of all the things we make it. Because he wants to give us what we do not deserve. And we say, no, no, no. We'll make it what we want it to be. We will behave how we want to behave, and then we'll ask you to forgive us. We'll confess, but the repentance thing we'll kind of leave on the side. It's not about us. Easter's not about us. It's about his love for us, and we get the benefit of it, but it's no cost to us. It's all the cost to him. But the temple worship doesn't work. The donkey isn't being praised, and the people aren't going to get what they want. They're going to get a suffering servant, a wounded healer, a dying savior. They're going to worship someone who's hung up on a tree like a criminal, but he's going to take the sting out of death. Why did he do it? Well, he just wanted to die so we would know how much he loves us. No, because we needed saving, and we still need saving. We're in the present and ongoing state of having been saved. So I'm going to ask you a question. If it's not about what you want it to be, and it is about what Christ wants it to be, is there something, some way, that you or I are misusing religion For our purpose? Are we listening to those deceitful words that sound kind of true, but aren't, that he was talking about in Malachi and Jeremiah? Have we created a place where we think that we can go and be bandits out there, but safe in here? Are we a people or are we individual persons that are living in such a way that other people are attracted to who our God is? That's what his house is supposed to be. So what is it that if Christ showed up today, he would judge in you and in me? I don't like that. See, judgment is about his great love for us. He judged our sin already, but what would he judge now? Because if it's gonna burn It's better if it burns now than for you to go with it and burn. See, this is Palm Sunday, and we celebrate the triumphal entry, and then at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, and we overlook the suffering and the trial and the extent to which God was willing to go to make sure that you know he loves you and save you from yourself because Christianity is not about self. It's about other. So what does he wanna judge? And if you find anything, confess it, repent of it, and receive the forgiveness that he offers. Have faith in God, get rid of that old system, send it to hell where it belongs, ask God and make sure you forgive so that you're forgiven. It's the gospel. And it's what Palm Sunday is about. It's about those other things too. But he came to judge. And he's judging the religious institution and how we make what God wants about us instead of about him and others. If you have ears to hear, I hope you hear. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to do it, but I'm going to thank you for judgment. I don't like what you showed me this week in me. And I'm guessing that there are people right now that don't like what they might see in themselves. But you love us enough to tell us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You, you love us enough to tell us in advance so that we have a chance to repent. Lord, I don't want anyone here, anyone here walking. I don't want anyone walking out of here feeling condemned because you didn't come to condemn, but to save. But Lord, if there's some conviction if you've pricked our hearts in any way, I pray that we have the courage to bend our knee, confess our sin, receive forgiveness, receive mercy and grace, and then from that point forward to move on, living our lives in such a way that others can see who our God is. Pray this in Jesus' name. Because of the spirit that lives within us, for the glory of God our Father. Amen.